are here. And as we worship together, we pray God's blessings on our church family, that we will be what God wants us to be. And as we read through Scripture this year, I plan, Lord willing, maybe not every Sunday, but many Sundays, to focus on what we're reading and to help us, I hope, to kind of situate what we're reading within God's overarching plan of what God is doing in the world. We need every, every year, every moment, we need to remember that we are a part of a bigger thing. We're, we're part of a bigger story, a bigger narrative of what God is doing, you know? And, and, and we, maybe, maybe now even more than most times, we need to remember that we are working in some sort of way. God in His sovereignty and His wisdom, He allows us to join hands with Him and in, in accomplishing His will. It's an amazing thing. So we find these stories in the book of Genesis. And as I mentioned in the, in the introduction a minute ago, you know, it's an interesting thing when we read these stories. Um, I'm going to point out a couple of them in a minute, but I've, I've preached sermons like this before, and I'll no doubt will again preach sermons about what we learn from the life of Abraham, for example about his being a man of faith, a person of faith. And there's a, man, there's some things we can learn from that. Abraham was the father of the faithful, you know, and, and the kind of faith that he had was, was incredible in some ways. I've preached sermons from Hebrews chapter 11 where we've got the Faith Hall of Fame, the Heroes of Faith, where, where the writer goes and he kind of catalogs these great men and women of old and how they distributed faith and they walked in faith and all that. And so there's, there are times and places for us to reflect on what can I learn from the life of Abraham that will be positive. What can I learn from the life of David or Samson or Moses or whoever and, and think I can be more like that. But having said that, I don't think that's the best way Certainly not the first way we go to these people and try to glean lessons from their lives. I think that's a secondary move that we make when we're reading the Bible. And I want to show you why I think that is the case this morning. God's broken heroes. We've read a big part of Genesis. And I hope, and by the way, I always hesitate just a little bit when I'm talking about what we've been reading. Because I know not everybody in this room has been reading Genesis. And if you're a part of our congregation, it is not too late. You could catch up. You could catch up in just a few days. If you read maybe 30 minutes a day for the next couple of weeks, you could be caught up with us. And so I don't want you to give up because you haven't joined us yet or you've gotten behind, you're a few chapters behind, or maybe you're 40 chapters behind or whatever. That it would be very helpful to you in your walk with Jesus Christ for you to go ahead and join in on our reading through the Bible together. We'll be reflecting on it throughout the year, Lord willing. And it won't take you that long to get caught up. You know, we're, we're not too far into the book of Genesis. So what we've been reading this year, we've read about Genesis 12. We've, we, last week when we were studying at this place, you know, we, we talked about how God's story started with in the beginning and then the fall and then how God called Abraham and God is, is bringing about this plan. He's working through this plan. But I want to go back and kind of drill down in a couple of different places and think about some specific things that happened. God's broken heroes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, in Genesis 12, the text I read a minute ago is the call of Abraham. Famous text. God calls Abraham. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees, Persian Gulf, north, north of there, that region of the world, Iraq, modern-day Iraq. 
And, um, and he calls him out of that place. And he says, I'm going I'm to I'm gonna take you from there. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to give you this great family and all, this, all these blessings, all these promises that God makes. But I want you to notice something particular. I don't know if you've kind of connected these two stories. At the end of verse 3, he says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I know we read that, and we should read that by looking ahead to that Jesus Christ is going to come into the world through the descendants of Abraham, right? So we know that's where this story is ultimately going. We read that as Christians. So we see that trajectory, that arc that finds its way to Jesus. But I want you to notice something else that's kind of interesting, and I think we ought to, we ought to make this connection. In you, all the families of the earth shall be, shall be what? What does that word say? What is that word? Shall be blessed. The very next paragraph, the, the, the rest of chapter 12, Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with, went with him. So, so far, so good. Verse 9, Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And then in verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So here's the first moment of testing in Abraham's life after the great call of Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to the world. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this family. All this. There's a famine in the land, verse 10. Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, I'm not going to read this whole story here, but I, you may remember this. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham almost immediately goes down to Egypt. And do you know what happens in Egypt? Because Abraham went down, there was a, not, not, not the famine, that wasn't caused by Abraham, but Abraham brought curses on the house of Pharaoh. Now, it came about because Abraham, you know, lied about his wife Sarah and that, and that whole thing, and God sent plagues. You remember this story? Down in verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. I do believe we are supposed to read these two stories in conjunction with each other. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham's first move was to go down to Egypt and he brought plagues, not blessings, but plagues and curses on the household of Pharaoh. And I, and I think as we read this story, we're supposed to, we're supposed to see this. Abraham is going to be this, this person, this father of the faithful, yes. His family is going to lead us to Jesus Christ, yes. But Abraham takes quite a few missteps along the way, and it doesn't take him long to make the first one. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Bring blessings on all the families of the earth. Well, immediately, Abraham doesn't do that. He brings about plagues. You... Uh, you read through Abraham's life, and you see a trajectory that is toward growing faith. We need to acknowledge that. But in that trajectory, in that arc, we see these moments of weak faith. We, we, we see the stories of Abraham taking matters into his own hands. You know, God had said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you this family. And Abraham gets impatient, he and his wife. Together, of course, take Hagar, the slave, and Abraham conceives a child through her. You remember that story of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. And God says, essentially, Abraham, that's not the way this is going to happen. I'm going to give you a son. You've got to be patient, right? But Abraham is taking these missteps. He's like us. He loses faith. He has faith sometimes, but sometimes, man, it's weak. You get, you get distracted and you, you, you get impatient with God. Why isn't God doing it this way? Why isn't God doing it faster? I'm going to do it this way. I think maybe I can, 
I can uh, fit that into the will of God somehow, you know. That's what Abraham does. This is one of the heroes of Scripture, and rightly so. Abraham grows in his faith, but you've got these moments here. I mean, you go ahead to the life of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac made the same mistake that his father did about lying about his wife. Isaac does, follows in the footsteps of his dad. We don't know that much about Isaac. We, as far as Scripture goes, it doesn't tell us a whole ton about Isaac, but we've got more about Jacob. You remember the story of Jacob? Let me point out just a couple of things about Jacob. Jacob's very name is a name that has a kind of a negative connotation to it. It means supplanter because he grabbed the heel of his brothers. They were being born to grab the heel of, to, to grab hold of. But, but it has this negative connotation that really means to supplant the place of another by deceit. That's, that's the connotation of it. To take the place of another, to deceive, to manipulate, to orchestrate situations so that I can have what I want. That's kind of what Jacob's name means and that's how he lived his life. From the very moment of his birth, he grabbed his brother's heel, and he lives that way. Jacob does. This is Jacob. This is Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. This is Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and the nation of Israel was named after him. And yet Jacob lived his life grabbing the heel, grabbing and doing whatever he could to make sure things happened the way he wanted them to. He, he deceived his brother, or he tricked his brother, or manipulated his brother into selling his birthright. Then later he tricked his father into giving the blessing to him instead of his brother. I mean, Jacob was going about, and man, he was, he was manipulative, and he was deceitful. Jacob wanted to get what Jacob wanted. Are you ever like that? Do we ever do that? Do we ever try ourselves to be self-willed and to manipulate and to orchestrate and to try to get people to do what we want them to do because we want it done the way we think it ought to be done. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're reading through now the last chapters of Genesis and we're reading about Jacob's family. Jacob had 12 sons, one daughter, couple of things about Jacob's sons. There was a story about when their sister, these sons, their sister was defiled. They responded as was very appropriate in their world, but not consistent with what God was leading them to be. They responded with violence and revenge. Slaughtered a village of people out of revenge for what they had done to their sister. That's Judah and Reuben and Levi, the brothers, these, these sons, violent, violently took the lives of people. You read, you read about other stories like Genesis 37. This, these, these are the 12 sons of Jacob, right? We're reading about this this, this week. Judah and Reuben and the others, not all, all equally guilty in this thing, but they got jealous of their younger brother Joseph, the coat of many colors, that story. They got jealous of him, and, and they decided, hey, we're going to kill him. We're going ki to kill our brother. And, 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 you know, a couple of them stepped in and said, well, we don't need to do that. So, so they kind of settled for, well, we're not going to kill him. We're going to sell him into slavery. I just want you to think about these stories. You know, you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You got these, you got these brothers who are going to kill their younger brother, and they say, "No, we're not going to kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery." And so they do that. 
this, this is the family. This is the family that's going to lead us to Jesus. There's one more story, Genesis 38. Just take a look at Genesis 38. If you haven't read it yet. That story's about Judah. And Judah takes this situation, there's this illicit sexual relationship, all, all sorts of ugly things in Genesis 38. I find this interesting that when the Bible tells us the stories of these people, he tells them warts and all. You know, he doesn't sugarcoat them. He doesn't make them seem better than they are. He just tells us how they were. And maybe there's something for us to learn from that story, from these stories as well. Now, you know, you move on in the book of Genesis. In the last chapters you read, they sold Joseph into slavery, and Joseph went down to Egypt, and Joseph was there for some time. And the brothers came back, and they're reunited as a family, and and you've got the conclusion of the book of Genesis with their being in Egypt and the family there. But how they got there, just fascinating, how they got there was a series of missteps, acts of rebellion, mistakes, loss of faith, and yet through it all, God kept working. Where are God's heroes? We're gonna, you, these narratives are repeated again and again, not just in Genesis but really all the way to the end. God's heroes. Can I make just a couple of observations for us to think about this? And as you've wrestled with this and you see this brokenness and you see these mistakes and you wonder, I wonder, why did God tell us all this? Or why did God do it this way? Why didn't God do it some other kind of way? And I think we all understand that God is sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient. He, God could have done it had it been consistent with his will to do it some other kind of way. God could have done it in some supernatural, miraculous way. God could have just intervened and outside of the messiness of humanity and, and brought about the salvation of us. That's, that's His goal. He wants to get us to a place where we're reconciled with Him. That's the story of the Bible, you know, to bring us back into a relationship with Him. God could have acted in some sort of supernatural, miraculous way just to, just to bring about salvation, perhaps, if that had been consistent with His will. But God did not do it that way. God chose to intervene in the messiness of humanity, in the deceit of Abraham and Isaac, in the manipulation of Jacob, in the, in the violence of Judah and his brothers, in the immorality of Judah. God chose to work. <clears throat> God chose to work through the messiness of the broken heroes of the Bible. And isn't that fascinating? The first page, when we... When we get to Matthew, the first page of the New Testament starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And I think in many ways that genealogy is there, maybe in a secondary way, to point us to how Jesus came into the world through the messiness of this family. So let me make a couple of observations for you and me. <clears throat> what do we learn here? Maybe we learn something about the tension here. When we recognize that God has always worked, and by the way, He still continues to work through brokenness, through broken people. God has always done it that way. You know, the church sometimes is messy. Have you ever noticed that? The church is sometimes messy. 
we have issues <laughs> because we're, is there any family out there that doesn't have issues? Families have issues because we are human beings. And at times the church in every place, the church universal, the church local, it has struggles, it has tension because it has people in it. It has people who have selfish desires, people who are sometimes self-willed. And yet God still chose to work through the messiness of the church to share the gospel with the world. Isn't that an interesting thing? That God chose us, me, and you. And we all know every person in this room. We are in so many ways and so often we're doing it we're doing it the wrong way at times. We're doing it selfishly. We are self-concerned and self-obsessed so often. And yet God still in His infinite wisdom chose the church. I find that fascinating. You read the New Testament. You read about the church at Corinth. Man, that church was so messed up. And Paul doesn't say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just mess, messed up world. Just go in your messed up state and whatever. Paul doesn't do that. But he also doesn't give up on them. He works with Corinth. And Corinth was to be a light in the messed up city of Corinth. God was going to shine forth through that church in Corinth. And the church at Philippi in Philippi. And the church at Colossae in Colossae. And the, and the Thessalonian church in Thessalonica. God worked through these local bodies with their missteps to bring glory to the name of God and to share the gospel with the world that needed to hear it. You see, we see echoes of that in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is working through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think there's a reason why the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things and doesn't act as if Abraham doesn't, have any mis doesn't make any mistakes. Wants us to know this is the way God has always done things and the way He always will do them until the Lord comes back. So our response to this, I think sometimes we can get off base as we respond to this sort of thing. There can be kind of this, um, this inactive passivity when we recognize that God is acting. God is the primary mover. He's the primary actor. He is sovereign, that the story is all about God's. And I meant to say that a little bit more about that earlier. One of the things that we, we need to be reminded of when we read this about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the others is that this is not a story about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, and Moses. It's not, it's not a story about them. This is a story about God. This is a story about what God is doing. God is the primary actor throughout all these narratives to bring about His will. And so our first question is, what is God doing here? What, is, what, 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 um, what hints do we get in the text about what God is doing? Now, when we recognize that all of history is this is our God acting and bringing about His will, we can respond in a couple of different ways. And one of them is an inactive passivity. We just kind of like, well, it's all about God, and so I can't do anything anyway. I'm just messed up. I'm just broken. I don't, you know, I'm a sinful person. I don't have that many talents or whatever. And I can't really bring about any change whatsoever anyway. And whatever I try to do, it doesn't... We can kind of have that, that kind of discouraged passivity that this, I'm just going to sit here. It's all about God anyway. God's going to do what God's going to do, and so I'm just going to... It's going to be passive. That's completely the wrong response. Because God doesn't give us that choice. He doesn't say you can either be involved or not. It's your choice. It's not that kind of thing. We can't be inactive. We can't be passive. We can't just say, well, God is going to do it. 
Because God works through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes He works in spite of them. But God always invites human actors to participate in the narrative that God is moving forward. And I think, I think sometimes we can get off base and, and think, well, the work of God depends on him or her or the, the, the elders or the preachers or it's, it's going to be you know those people with talents or opportunities or gifts or whatever we're thinking about but not us, you know. That's a passive response. I don't see that in Scripture. It's just, it's just not there. But I think the other extreme from inactive passivity is kind of a self-focused activity, as if God depends on me. You know? This is the, this is the Pharisee in, in, God, in Luke's Gospel where he says, you know, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and I don't do this, and I don't, I'm not like that guy over there. You know, I, God, you and I, equal partners in this thing. We're working together. Look at us. This kind of self-focused activity in contrast to the inactive passivity is also wrong. This is a very human-centered sort of thing that... that, that you know, yes, God is important, but, but my work is, is also, you know, it's 50-50. God and, God and me, two of us working together. See, that becomes kind of a self-focused thing. Look at what I'm doing and what I need to do in order to manipulate, like Jacob, the situation in order to bring about God's will. And so this, you see, you see this, it's kind of a self, this is a self-focused, selfish, self-obsessed activity that often masquerades itself as accomplishing the will of God on his behalf. And, and, and this is a dangerous thing because one of two things happens here, I think. Sometimes it results in a kind of pride and arrogance that when good things happen, well, I did that. See all the good that I've done? Pat me on the back. Look at how good things are. Look at, look at, the, look at all this good stuff. Man, I am so awesome. God's lucky to have me on his team. You know, that, that sort of thing. That's what self-direction, self-obsession leads to. When good stuff happens, well, you know, y'all thank me because I brought this about. But often, it kind of leads to despair as well because every single one of us knows that sometimes we put forth our best efforts and we do not see the results that we want. And so it leads to despair. I can't do anything. I try and I try and I try. Nobody cares. Nobody listens. It's, I'm, not, I'm doing no good whatsoever. You see, this self-obsessed activity, self-directed activity can lead to either arrogance or despair. When I think, when you think... It's all up to us. We're the only ones left. Remember Elijah? <laughs> Elijah, uh, he, he, uh, he had that pity party. You remember the pity party where he said, I alone am left. And God said, Elijah, come on. Get up. I got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to bow, and I'm still going to use you. Get up and get busy. You know, I mean, God was patient with him. He didn't say it that uh, he didn't rebuke him quite like that, but, but, he, but in essence, he, said, he didn't say, Elijah, I got, I got 7,000 here. You're not, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not indispensable either. But God got Elijah up, dusted him off, fed him, got him some water, and 
got him active again. You know, but, but there's that, that tendency for us to think, man, we're the only ones left. I'm it. I'm it. That's a self-directed activity. Inactive passivity, self-directed activity. Somewhere in this tension, though, there's what I think is the right way to read God's story. God's heroes are those who recognize the story is God's. That God is the one who gets the glory. God is the one who does the work. He's the one who does the lifting. God is the one who brings history toward its final end when Jesus comes and restores all. But also, we recognize that God somehow, and this is an incredible thing, God somehow decided in His infinite wisdom, we know it to be the right decision, of course, but in His infinite wisdom and sovereignty, God has decided to allow us to participate with Him in the bringing about of His will. Somehow. Isn't that amazing? You and me, of all people, of all people, we, with all of our shortcomings and sinful sinful acts, and sometimes our, man, we lose focus. In all of that, God has still said, hey, I'd like for you to come alongside of me and work, and the greatest work of all. Isn't that a, great, isn't that a pretty neat thing? You know, tomorrow's um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I think it's a good time to reflect on the great change that can be brought about when someone is willing to act in the moment to bring about that which is good and the lasting effects that can have when people are willing to be used by God to bring about justice, to bring about equity, to bring about good. I wonder, I think, I think, I think for us, for, for Christians, it's, it's very important when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we read these stories and we, we reflect on their, how they messed up and yet God still used them for us to ask right now, in what way might God use me, us, to do good right now where we are? Not to... Not to be, throw up our hands in despair. The world, look at the world. Man, it's so messed up, broken. Look at all this violence, look at all this anger. And maybe I've, I've felt this a little bit lately. Maybe you have as well. It's just like, I don't know what to do. You know, what, what in the world? What in the world can, can, can I do, can you do to fix this mess we're in? Kind of an inactive, passive kind of thing. I don't know of anything. I think that's the wrong response. We're not, we're not trying to be self-proclaimed heroes. We're going to fix everything. But at the same time, to act locally, as they say. Think globally, act locally. What do we, what do, we do? We recognize we can't fix it. It's not our job to fix it anyway. God's in the fixing business. But at the same time, God does allow us to come alongside Him and to join hands with Him in doing good work. And so what do we do? We act where we are, 
with the influence that we have, the moment where we are, in our location, in our circle of influence, with our God-given gifts, with our, with what God has entrusted to us, with being stewards, we say, how can we promote what God is doing in the world? How can we bring about love? How can we promote kindness? How can we push for equity and fairness and goodness and life? How can we do that right now? Don't, don't retreat into this, this, um, this kind of this passivity that says we can't do anything, but neither do we want to act as if the whole world is on our shoulders. It's not. It's on, it's on God's. And so, but we come, we come to God and we say, God, I know you're working and I know you're acting and I know you're doing. Help me to find that place where I can join in in some sort of small way to bring about your goal, to share the gospel with someone who needs to hear it. You know, again, I, th- I know all of you would agree with this, but we look around and we see brokenness and we see anger and division. And we know, we know politics not going to fix it. Government's not going to fix it. Money's not going to fix it. Only the gospel can go into people's broken, messed up hearts and shape them and transform them and bring about healing and unity, restoration and good, you know? Only the gospel. Only when people recognize that this is not the way. This is not the way we're doing it. This is not it. This is not the way to fix it. The way to fix it is for us to recognize that the God above loves us desperately and he died on the cross for us to invite us into a relationship with him. And that kind of self-emptying desire, that self-emptying, putting the towel around your waist and serving, this, this other focus kind of ethic, only that fixes brokenness. And God has invited you and me to join hands with him in doing that. Same was true 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years from now. The story's always the same. The answer is always the same. For hearts to realize that God's way is best. If you're not a Christian this morning, we, uh, we believe we are acting on his behalf when we say God is inviting you to be a part of what he's doing in the world. That, that if you're not a Christian, if you, if you haven't yet submitted your life you're everything to Jesus Christ. We want to invite you to do that today, to give your heart to Him. That's the answer to the ills of the world. It's the answer to the ills of your life and mine is for us to submit to Him, to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to put Him on in baptism, all your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. A beautiful, beautiful moment, a beautiful act of submission when you come to faith in Him and submit your life to Him. It's what the world needs. It needs more folks to act in ways that are consistent with what God is calling us to be and to do. Maybe you need to come back to God today because your life has not reflected that, that kind of ethic, that kind of response. We invite you to come home today. Let's stand. Let's sing this song for your encouragement.